This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Chasser, and welcome back to another week of Reform This. And this is a program like no other in the United States where a reformist American Muslim in the first-of-its-kind podcast holds no punches as we breach the many fault lines of the day between the West and Islamic communities. And we try to defeat the scourge of humanity of the 21st century, which is the ideology of Islamism, and educate you the most important members of this battle, the average American citizen and the average Westerner, to the battle that we have to undertake, not only within the House of Islam, but across the borders, across the oceans, to defeat the theocracy, the theocrats of political Islam. A lot has happened since we last spoke, and first, as as a Muslim who loves my faith, I have to open by wishing fellow Muslims a uh, glorious Ramadan Karim, which means a uh, blessed Ramadan. Uh, as we started this year on June 6th, we use in Islam the lunar calendar, similar to the Jewish community. And Ramadan is the ninth month of our lunar calendar. And in that month, it is a month of fasting, a month of spiritual renewal, and a month of atonement. And there is really nothing more central, I think, to that atonement than the need to reform. And in this Ramadan, as Muslims gather with their families every night, uh, the fasting is no different than the fasting that uh, is the Lentian fast of the Christian community or the Yom Kippur fast of the Jewish community, which is that God teaches us that thirst, hunger, the deprivation of that which is our most native need internally in our body is what reminds us of what it is to be human. It reminds us of what it is to be healthy and reminds us of what it is to be blessed and have the wealth to have food and drink and sustenance. And uh, it is the equalizer from rich to poor, from free to oppressed. Uh, all of us, no matter what our situations are, feel the same hunger and thirst and remember that it really at the end doesn't all matter. And that ultimately what makes us human is our ability to be free. And I'll remember as my family suffering in Aleppo that are not free, that 
You know, I think as you look at a compassionate and merciful God, you realize that do they even have to fast in Syria? Every day of their fast, right? Every day of their year is fasting, not knowing if they're going to have food or water, not knowing where it's going to come from, if they have the money, if they have the stores to find that food, the farms from which to get it, if they're going to be able to dodge bombs. And we live here freely in America, and we are blessed. And many of us in the Muslim community are seeing a genocide unfolding in Syria, and we're reminded and thankful of the blessings that we have in this glorious country, the freest nation on earth, that city on a hill, the United States of America. So in this Ramadan, I wish my fellow Muslims a glorious Ramadan and a a productive and rewarding and easy fast for the next 30 days. And for those who wonder, try to figure out when Ramadan starts every year. It's uh, the ninth month, as I said, and since the lunar calendar is 355 days, our months move up 10 days every year approximately. So our holiday this year at the end of Ramadan Eid al-Futr will be the first day of the following month, the 10th month. And you're reminded that uh, this year, for example, it'll be around July 7th, uh, but uh, these holidays move. So back to current issues of the day. And, you know, I have to, as I mentioned in Syria, what's happening, uh, talk about briefly uh, what uh, the most grotesque tyrant on the planet uh, did uh, just a few days ago, Bashar Assad uh, leading his military uh, um, killing machine of the Assadist Ba'athists that continue to slaughter innocents. He gave a speech in Damascus uh, at the beginning of Ramadan and he said, our war against terrorism is continuing. Assad said in a speech to the parliament, as we liberated Tadmur, also known as Palmyra, and before it, the many areas, we will liberate every inch of Syria from their hands. Our only option is victory, otherwise Syria will not continue. And he basically swore that he will win back every inch of Syria and said Aleppo would be a graveyard for the hopes and dreams of the Turkish president, Erdogan, a major sponsor of the insurgents battling to topple Assad. So he's clearly laid this out, and we've seen now new operations with heightened not only air operations in Russia over Aleppo using various types of uh, bombs, everything short of chemical weapons, including barrel bombs and carpet bombing of various neighborhoods of Aleppo. But all of this happens as America sleeps. All of this happens that it is, as I've said before on this program, a genocide sandwich in Syria between the genocide being perpetrated by ISIS against the minority Christians and Yazidis in northeast Syria as they subject him to slavery and rape and executions and beheadings in the name of Islam, and the other more populous genocide of the Assad regime and the Ba'athists that have now in their fifth year been killing hundreds of thousands up to over half a million dead from Damascus to Aleppo to Idlib all across Syria and over 10 million displaced with 5 million displaced internally and over 5 million displaced externally. We've seen the millions going into Europe and the refugee crisis that that is causing with ISIS also hijacking that and bringing 
a reign of terror into Europe and all the way to San Bernardino. So the issue is, today, as we look at this, and you know, as we reflect in this month of atonement, what is, what can we do besides pray? What is America's role? So many people on social media I hear from are understandably saying, well, what can we do? Who do we support there? There's nobody to support. My first answer is, well, there were people there to support years ago before ISIS even existed, and now they're, they truly are vanishing. It was before the Erdogans of the world and the Saudi Wahhabis and the Qatari Islamists filled that vacuum that Obama and the West left. But still, there will always be a third path in Syria. I think our founding fathers, I think the Rev- French revolutions and the revolutions in the West proved and then still fell back into fascism in the 20th century that we still then went back and defeated. And we remembered on June 6th, the greatest day maybe in the 20th century was D-Day, in which our soldiers fought to defend freedom against fascism. And that was the turning point was D-Day, in which we landed on Normandy Beach. And yet that was hundreds of years after we thought democracy had solidified itself in the West. So to those who think that Syria has a choice between two evils and that's it, I think Bush 43 had it right. He said people will, in the end, want to be free. Left to their own devices, they will choose freedom. Now, There are so many limits to that and obstacles. The number one obstacle, which is what we're trying to reform here, I believe, is the theocratic mandates of the religion of Islam as interpreted by so many across the world. Not my interpretation, but certainly a predominant interpretation of most of the Muslim countries. That is a predominant obstacle. Other obstacles include military dictatorships that will arrest anyone who tries to speak free and reform And thus, they want nothing with Islamic reform because to them, Islamic theocracy is that obstacle that they will use when necessary. And just as Assad said, he's fighting terrorism. He loses his oxygen without the existence of ISIS. He loses his fuel and reason for existence without radical groups to proclaim. That's why he's bombing the moderate human beings in neighborhoods of Syria and Aleppo and Damascus. So you can't reform theocratic ideas of Islam without first ending the major military dictatorships that are bolstering themselves in existence by allowing Wahhabis of Saudi Arabia, by allowing the ISISs of Syria, by allowing the Muslim Brotherhoods of Egypt. So the Al-Sisi's of the world on the one hand will say they're against the Brotherhood And on the other hand, fuel the universities that teach those ideas. Fuel the universities that target Western freedom and say that the West is evil and hates Islam and while they call themselves our allies. So the speech that Assad gave this week, he conveniently found a target that both Russia and the West will will agree, as I do, that Erdogan is a plague on the Middle East and Islamism is spreading exponentially. But the Assad regime is part and parcel of that. It is the core cancer that is fueling 
the ideology of militant Islam because it does not allow the free exchange of ideas. It does not allow critical thinking, and it uses minorities as a backdrop upon which to justify the targeting of moderates throughout Syria. And Russia is also leading this and is just as complicit as Assad regime themselves. And we see them, on the one hand, a month or two ago, claiming fault, fictitiously that they're going to pull out of Syria, when in fact they're pushing more troops to bolster Assad and continue to prop up his regime so that they can maintain their base in Tartus on the on the sh- shores of the Mediterranean and also maintain their, their triangle of evil with Iran, Assad, and the Shiites of Iraq bolstered by Russia. This is the situation in Syria, and Ramadan began with Assad preaching more evil. And I hate to be sarcastic, but in the future, there has to be more for us to do today than to simply say, well, in 10 years we'll add a wing to the Holocaust Museum in Washington and say that, well, here's some pictures and videos of a genocide we could do nothing about. It'll be over half a million. It'll go to a million or two million and more dead. Eventually, the Assad regime will end. Eventually, ISIS will end. Eventually, Russia will leave Syria, and the Syrian people will be free. The question is, what side of history will America be on? I hope, and I know we've chosen the right side repeatedly in history, from World War One and Two to the Cold War, and now the greatest battle of our time, which is the global battle against political Islam and all of its allies of secular dictatorships across the organization of Islamic cooperation. When we get back, we'll talk a little bit about Uber, Saudi Arabia, and the Council on American-Islamic Relations. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. The National Weather Service wrote on its Facebook page, a haboob is rapidly approaching the Lubbock airport and may affect the city as well. What the hell is a haboob? It's a dust storm, Oh, of course, a haboob. I'm sorry. That is Arabic in nature. That's where the word comes from. This Arabic thing is coming towards the airport, folks. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to another episode of Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, your faithful American trying to breach the lines and the fault lines between the West and political Islam and theocratic Islam across the planet. I said when we came back we were going to talk about Uber, and uh, we were talking about Ramadan, the beginning of this holy month in Islam, and I have to first mention uh, you know, Bill Gertz had a good piece at the Free Beacon this week in which he again addresses, you know, the question I get, well, Zudi, if if ISIS, you know, if, if Ramadan is so peaceful, why does Al-Qaeda and ISIS always, 
always call for strikes and killing and murder during the month of Ramadan. This is not a religion of peace. You know, I'm I'm speechless. I I don't know what to say. They're they're right. <laughs> this is not a religion of peace for ISIS or Al Qaeda. And this is the battle. Who's Islam? Certainly, the Islam of ISIS takes every humbling moment of a personal faith and uses it to demonize and to collectivize the faith into a monstrous military unit that can be used to oppress, suppress, and spread their ideology in a militant jihadist fashion. To them, jihad is a forward imperialistic fight, and thus anything that is a heightened level of spirituality will be a call to arms. And as Bill Gertz reports at the Free Beacon, he said the Islamic State is urging jihadists in the U.S. and Europe to carry out terror attacks during what a group spokesman promised would be the month of conquest and jihad. So to them, it's not a personal month. To them, if you die during the month of Ramadan, then it's going to be that many more times more blessings. So to them, it's a warped spirituality, one in which they, in a narcissistic, evil way, choose to enact and impose their violence upon in an inhuman way upon anyone who is non-Muslim or especially moderate Muslims who reject their evil rhetoric. And actually the U.S. government has warned that ISIS attacks either directly sponsored or simply inspired by the group's rhetoric could be carried out during Islam's month of Ramadan that began on June 5. And then ISIS had made a video on May 21st that talked about that, the, uh, the, this uh, reject, Muhammad al-Adnani, called on jihadists to get prepared, be ready, and to make it a month of calamity everywhere for non-believers, especially for the fighters and supporters of the caliphate in Europe and America. And then the State Department said that this was a credible threat. And they go on in the video to say that according to ISIS, Islamic practice, sacrifice can be considered more valuable than that made at other times. So a call to martyrdom during the month may hold a special allure to some. So bottom line is is that if you see something, say something. Ramadan, yes, it's a personal time of atonement, but these militants might... It will try to choose to act. And yes, there have been many wars fought by Muslims during Ramadan, sometimes for often the militant side using it, and other times it is as the wars in the Old Testament and others have been righteous wars. But we'll talk about that at some other time when we compare and discuss some of the historical elements of Islam. I wanted to also talk about Again, we've talked in the past episodes about the influence of Saudi money. And I will always use this program to highlight the the evil penetration of their billions upon the United States. Because those billions are blockages, are blockages if you will, obstacles in, in us trying to reform because they ultimately prevent that money. What do they get in exchange? They then get a a West that is silenced to the realities that happens. They get the suppression of free speech. So, what does Uber do? Uber hires David Pluff, a a leading politician that helped President Obama get elected, 
and uh, then puts him on their board. And he then becomes a pivotal cog, as the New York Times reports last week, in securing $3.5 billion. Yes, $3.5 billion in monies that uh, were used by Uber to then welcome Uber to Saudi Arabia. Uber had reported that they had raised the $3.5 billion from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, the kingdom's main investment fund and one of the largest ever investments into a privately held startup. And the New York Times further reports that uh, the ride-hailing giant's most recent financing round had valued Uber at $62.5 billion, but yet they really needed that Saudi $3.5 billion and Uber had viewed the Middle East as an important area in its expansion and said it, it would align the company with Saudi Arabia as the kingdom planned to transform its economy, reducing its dependence on oil and improving the employment. Right. Please tell me what the billions have done in Saudi Arabia over the past 50 to 100 years. Absolutely nothing. It's been used to suffocate the people because the wealthier the royal tyrants are, the wealthier the monarchs are, the more they solidify their power with military weapons, with global alliances that help them suffocate the people and put in prison the reformers like Raif Bedoui, Walid Abu Khair, and others I've talked about on this program. And if you look who's now on the board of Uber, you now have, for example, Princess Rima bint Bandar Al Saud, who sits on the Uber Policy Advisory Board and worked with Uber to usher the service into the country. And she supposedly has the support of female users of the service, and it was a clear sign of change coming to the region. So my question is, will Uber create a different version of the software only applicable in Saudi Arabia where the the user's sex will be known? Because you can't have a man and a woman alone in a vehicle in Saudi Arabia. Will they change the software to then filter for certain sexes? Will they change the software to a theocratic, oppressive method in which uh, women cannot be drivers? Or if they are drivers, they can never be alone in the car because they still can't drive in Saudi Arabia. So it is amazing the hypocrisy of countries built on free market enterprise like the American Uber. And now it is becoming a theocratic arm of Saudi Arabia, which will have to follow Sharia law as dictated by the Wahhabis who run the judicial and legal system of Saudi Arabia. How about the the uh, uh, committee to prevent, uh, uh, to promote virtue and prevent vice, the CPPV of Saudi Arabia? Will they use Uber or punish Uber drivers? And what will Uber do? None of these questions were asked by the Saudi report, by the New York Times report on the Saudi money. And it's questions that we should be asking. Because when you ask, where are Muslims? Why aren't they reforming Islam? Why haven't they reformed this yet? Thank you, Uber. Thank you, Silicon Valley, for selling out with billions to the theocrats of the Middle East that have created the ISISs. Uber has now invested $3.5 billion in future ISIS recruits in future ISIS teachers and forefathers. The founding fathers of ISIS came from the Wahhabis 
of Mecca and Medina that run the judicial and Sharia courts of Saudi Arabia. So thank you, Uber, for giving and, and allowing the Saudis to give you $3.5 billion so that you can then be part of the spread of ISIS throughout the Middle East. And I say that obviously sarcastically. Other people on Uber's board include Ariana Huffington. Huffington also has Huffington Gulf, Huffington Arabic, which has proven to now be a, a leading font of brotherhood ideology and Islamist ideology. Sure, they have some columns that are critical of of uh, and promote reform and critical of some of the, the old guard of the Middle East, but most of it, Huffington Arabic has turned into an Al Jazeera. Oh, and surprise, surprise, Huffington sits on, Ariana Huffington sits on the Uber board. You see the connections here? Where's the moderate voice of Islam? Not coming out of the Huffington Post, not coming out of the billions of Uber. Is Uber funding counterterrorism, counter-Islamism movements and think tanks to reform and promote liberty? I, I don't think so. And it certainly won't be coming now that they're in bed uh, to at least 5 to 10% of their own net worth with the Saudis. So, there is a, a little silver lining, I will tell you. We've talked a lot about the Council on American Islamic Relations here, which has a long and sordid history, basically Hamas and America. Well, the state lawmakers in Louisiana have recently, I think, set the standard for America. They have approved a measure as of June 6th to force all state agencies and law enforcement to avoid and suspend, avoid and suspend any ties with the Council on American Islamic Relations. And they said, because this group's been tied to the Muslim Brotherhood, because it's been tied to Hamas, because in a memo, in a letter written by the uh, director of the FBI to Senator Kyle here in Arizona, in which they said that uh, they cannot engage and do not engage with CARE because they've been unable to disengage and verbalize a clear commitment to condemn Hamas. They do not recommend the U.S. government working with them and since then have made them persona non grata with the FBI and Homeland Security. Now, the investigative project for terrorism has exposed that a few offices here and there have violated that. But for the most part, the so-called Council on American-Islamic Relations, a so-called civil rights group, really more of an Islamist evangelical group trying to use civil rights as a mantra in which to co-opt and exploit the Muslim community and their interpretations of Islam have really been a major radicalizer, as I call them, the Council on American Islamist, the Council for American Islamist Radicalization. And kudos to the state lawmakers in Louisiana for passing this legislation, making it them persona non grata in Louisiana. I hope Arizona, I hope Michigan, Illinois, New York, California, Florida, states with large active care organizations uh, become uh, I think heed the call of Louisiana and pass similar legislations uh, the report that I saw from uh, uh, the Free Beacon here said other states are expected to follow suit by implementing similar legislation and I think there's a lot to be learned here Kudos to Louisiana, a silver lining that some are getting it. 
this is how you marginalize the Islamists and you then allow there to be space for the moderates, for the anti-Islamists, those of us who don't simply fall in line with the CVE countering violent extremism, but those of us who believe that it should be countering violent Islamism, and that would then marginalize CARE and other groups. So kudos to Louisiana legislators. Thumbs down to Uber. I'm going to start looking at Lyft personally, uh, unless uh, up until then we see the Saudis maybe invest with them. Uh, but right now, maybe I'll start using Lyft. In the meantime, when we come back, we'll start talking and thinking about the legacy of the greatest Muhammad Ali. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. Is it Chicago's O'Hare? They're telling you to be there three hours ahead of time. And, and we, uh, yes, and we've, they've already come on, and TSA has come on and said how they're they're trying to streamline it. American Airlines said today they're gonna they're gonna start adding, helping them out. They're giving like four million to private stuff to help the TSA out ease the line. Pat and Stu, weekdays at five p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser back with you on Reform This, where we breach the fault lines between the Islamist world and the West, the lands of freedom and the lands of theocratic Islam, and in the ideologies and the front lines that many of these ideas are confronted. We bring it to you here, and we bring you solutions, solutions that I think you can take to your neighborhoods, your churches, your mosques, your synagogues, and begin to hold the Muslim community accountable to the ideas that are the front lines and confrontation between the East and West, if you will, or between Muslim consciousness and Western consciousness. One of the least covered stories, which I couldn't believe was not covered in just the past week, was on June 4th, the conviction of multiple Muslim members of the Minneapolis community for serving with ISIS. Unprecedented. They were found to be guilty of basically, I would call it treason. It wasn't treason, but they were basically found guilty of seeking to serve with an enemy of America and with ISIS abroad. It started back, as Reuters reports, in the spring of 2014, as the Islamic State seized ground in Syria, a group of 10 young Somali-American men in Minneapolis began scheming to join the battle between the games of basketball at a neighborhood mosque. And ultimately what happened, with the help of an informant, FBI agents tracked the group and prosecutors charged them with trying to join the Islamic State late in 2015. And ultimately, the largest such case the U.S. Justice Department has brought against a large group of Muslims who had tried to serve with ISIS. In February 2015, most of them, most of the arrests were made. The administration of Obama had designated Minneapolis, home to the largest population of Somali immigrants in the U.S., as the testbed 
for experimental efforts to counter terrorist recruiting because there had been, I think, somewhere upwards of 40 reported to have gone from Minneapolis to want to serve with ISIS, Al-Shabaab, and other radical Islamist groups. And the U.S. attorney there, Attorney Andrew Luger, had um, made outreach to the Somali community a top priority. And yes, the natural... Um, peanut gallery began to fend off what they felt to be penetration of the government into the Muslim community. Uh, a panel of advisors was formed for Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, and he issued a report last week calling for the government to step out of the role of messenger in its efforts to derail youth on the path to radicalization. So even though they just got a conviction on June 4th, Jay Johnson, listening to the Islamists in our community now, is going to abandon that program. While there's no evidence that the defendants participated in these programs, some critics in the Somali community saw Luger's efforts as a way to build cases, not reach out and just simply help counter-radicalize, but to build cases and get information. So they saw that dual role as hypocritical, and they decided to abandon it. I mean, it is just amazing to me that, that yes, the government is conflicted. There's no doubt. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't do it. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be involved in counter-radicalization programs. The only way we as Muslims can minimize their hypocrisy, their hypocritical role that they have to take, which is on the one hand to help communities not become radicalized, but on the other hand, keep their eyes and ears open, understand Muslims that are starting to get radicalized and the signs of those radicalization such as jihadization, anti-American foreign policy sentiment, anti-pro-militant uh, uh, gravitation towards groups like al-Shabaab, al-Qaeda, uh, the, the old uh, uh, Imam Awlaki. Those are things they should not ignore. They ignored it in San Bernardino and look what happened. They waited in, in Chattanooga. They waited until... Uh, he was militant and missed the opportunity to prevent what happened there. So ultimately, these programs are being guided not by logic and common sense, but by Islamists at the Council on American Islamic Relations and other Islamist groups in America. Yes, it is a double-edged sword, but the only way to decrease that is for Muslims to be leading counterterrorism organizations and have a private Nonprofit organizations like our American Islamic Forum for Democracy develop coalitions as we did with the Muslim Reform Movement that is focused on countering the ideologies of political Islam. That is the root cause. And then the government won't have to do it. But you can't tell the government to stay out of it completely and then hold them accountable for not having caught the militants before they commit their act of asynchronous warfare and kill innocents and buses and restaurants and healthcare facilities and army national guard places and on and on. So ultimately there's a huge amount of denial that exists for those of us who who are trying to do this work and others who say call us names like Uncle Tom or other crass uh, dismissals of the work that we do sometimes at high risk to ourselves, including folks at the FBI and the Homeland Security and others that do 
courageous, heroic work, sometimes undercover and sometimes openly, and yet they get demonized by groups like the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Still, the number of Americans trying to join the Islamic State has dropped in the past year, and I think a lot of that came. It went from 8 to 1 per month, according to James Comey, director of the FBI. The reason that decreased, I'll tell you, nobody seems to guess here, but I'll guess. The reason that number has gone down is, I think, of public attention. I think because of the horrific attacks in Paris twice, in November and then in March, in Belgium then, but with the same cell that came out of Paris, because of the attacks in San Bernardino, because of the attacks before that in Paris and in Charlie Hebdo, there's been a lot more attention in the last year. So there's been a ramped up attention of counter ideology, of exposing radicals within our communities. And that has decreased the, uh, the ability of some to find that space in which to become radicalized. So I think the the lesson there is that we must continue the heightened attention to radical Islam because with that heightened attention will come treatment and cure. Now, why does the heightened attention always have to be on the heels of dead Americans and Parisians and Belgians? That heightened attention needs to come simply from smart foreign policy, smart domestic policy, smart homeland security to unify together that we will declare Islamism as our enemy. Islamists who hold the ideology of Islamism as our enemy, no different than we did in the Cold War when we declared communists as the enemy. We didn't make it illegal. We shouldn't. You know, I disagreed with the McCarthy approach to Communist Party, but ultimately we should declare them radioactive and Islamists should be radioactive and that's what Louisiana did and I think that's what we learned by these convictions last week that ultimately uh, the the five convicted citizens that went to serve with ISIS proved that we can expose them, we can find them and we can bring them to the judicial system and bring them to justice. I think it's important if we look over 250 Americans have joined or tried to join the Islamic State since the group formed and the FBI has more than a thousand open investigations. By comparison, thousands of Europeans have joined the Islamic State. So where was the coverage last week? I'm afraid during this political season the coverage of radical Islam and the threats is going to decrease and the radicalization will increase. And so it goes up and down. At Reform This, we'll continue to cover the story. We'll continue to expose the stories. And hopefully the government will get back into the programs they were doing in Minneapolis that got these four that are now convicted and awaiting sentencing. And I think ultimately we will begin to learn, hopefully not the hard way, but from learning from our past mistakes. Today, I'm going to end talking about the great one, Muhammad Ali. You know, I grew up a child of the uh, late 60s and 70s, and there's no doubt that to see the name Muhammad on somebody that was quite a, a emotional, 
presence, a great presence in the sports arena of boxing, and who brought a great deal of passion to everything he did, was something that moved me quite a bit as a child. And with the passing of Muhammad Ali, many in the Muslim community, I think, uh, have seen probably one of the most well-known Muslims in the West and his life in a heroic fashion. As a physician, I'll tell you that what Muhammad Ali gave to the medical community through philanthropy and leadership in the Ali Parkinson's Center here in Phoenix at Barrows Neurologic Institute, uh, one of the largest fundraisers here in Arizona every year, was Fight Night. And it was just amazing to see the number of celebrities that would come from all over the country to help raise money to try to treat Parkinson's. And, you know, there's no greater tribute to the man than to see him as he suffered at the end of his life due to the sacrifices he made in the game of boxing and the injuries that he sustained from that game he then gave back and wanted to figure out and help donate his wealth and his time and philanthropy to other patients that have Parkinson's and other neurologic movement disorders from other causes, not only from boxing, but from any causes, that they could perhaps leave the world a better place to find a way to prevent that condition. And I think it's testimony to the fact that he realized that what he gave ultimately there may not be an answer to, but he was the great one. And I think there were so many battles that Muhammad Ali fought for. And I'm going to touch in the next segment about some of those more controversial ones that many of us have been outspoken about. But I think in the honesty of our faith and the honesty of what we are as Americans, it's important to be truthful about what those what those challenges were for Muhammad Ali and what they meant to many of us. So when we come back, we'll talk about the many battles that Muhammad Ali fought and ultimately what does the citizenship oath mean and how central is conscientious objection to Islam, to being Muslim, and what is Muhammad Ali's legacy? This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on Reform This. As we look at his life, rest in peace, Muhammad. And as we say in Islam, every soul shall have a taste of death, and to us you will be ultimately returned. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. As I point out to everybody, and no one can disagree with this, really, you know, you don't really know how someone's going to be president until they become president. And with Hillary, I think that we, if you look back at the record and what she believes... And what she's really said when she was free to say it. You have a far left progressive running. And I still, this is why I still think that it's essential for there to be GOP unity to defeat her. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. 
Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, where we talk about those most controversial topics between Islam and freedom, between Islamism and liberty, in which we confront those topics that most programs are just want to avoid. And really the only program, I think, in the West led by an American Muslim dedicated to reform in the United States. The country is mourning now the loss of the great one, the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali, a boxer who I grew up certainly watching and and waiting on the edge of my seat to watch uh, uh, in the in the ring, uh, but he's a complicated man, a man who had many different battles that he fought and brought me to think a lot about the role of my faith with my country. And ultimately, I chose a path in which, yes, Muhammad Ali inspired me to want to exercise, to want to be strong, to believe that I could do what I wanted to do. He was one of those that inspired anyone who paid attention to his confidence, sometimes his bombastic confidence that he had. But ultimately, in my choice to join the U.S. Navy and to serve my country, his example and his use of Islam and the Quran to separate himself from duty to country and service because of a war that he disagreed with, ultimately, I think, served as an example for me as an American Muslim of what not to do. And I say this with tough love. And, you know, I've gotten so much criticism on social media from radicals like Yasser Qadi, who the New York Times called the America's most influential imam, with uh, who has uh, who runs the uh, Al Maghrib Institute and is a professor in Tennessee. To tell you the language this guy used, because I simply had the temerity, I guess, to commit the blasphemy of praising Ali's spirit, praising his his um, tenacity, but then criticizing his decision not to serve in the U.S. Army and his decision to ultimately use the legal system to dodge the draft he found to be abominable and called me things that I just won't, won't cannot repeat on this podcast uh, using phrases like bootlicking and uh, other just unbelievable terms that then got spread throughout the Internet. And I tell you this because this is the battle we're up against, is that there are times in which there are core issues that shape the identity of Muslim youth across this country. And Clay versus the United States of America is one of those cases that I read when I was a teenager deciding whether to serve in the U.S. Navy. And to say that it's not relevant on his death as the world is honoring the death of Muhammad Ali and honoring his service to America, his service and, and all of the inspiration that he provided for us not to have this conversation. Every news story talked about the case, talked about uh, uh, how he was uh, lauded and vilified. So I think it's appropriate to have this conversation about what Clay versus the United States was. And I do think first I will use the words of President George Bush, who gave him the Medal of Freedom. George Bush, uh, 43, he said, When you say the greatest of all time is in the room, everyone knows who you mean. 
It's quite a claim to make, but as Muhammad Ali once said, it's not bragging if you can back it up. And this man backed it up. And the award wasn't without controversy. Several members of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, which I am a member of, by the way, I'm a VFW vet, complained because the anti-war icon was receiving the award. So, I will tell you that uh, many of the Muslim textbooks that we teach our kids in Sunday school have a whole section of pages about Muhammad Ali when they talk about great, honorable Western Muslims that are heroes for the American Muslim community. And it wasn't a coincidence in the Sunday school that I taught kids here in uh, Phoenix that uh, only a month or so after I had uh, said that uh, I disagreed with him being elevated to hero status. Yes, he was influential. Yes, he brought smiles and a positive image of the first name Muhammad. And in many, for many, especially those who were against the war, they saw his battle as being one that means they equated with a good Islam because they also did not want to go to Vietnam. But for many of us that believe that the citizenship oath means something, that it means that you will protect this country against enemies foreign and domestic. And if your government decides that we should go to war, even if we disagree, we go to war. That ultimately there is a loyalty that's involved in that citizenship oath. It doesn't mean we don't question our government, but it does mean that that citizenship oath carries meaning. I'll remind you what that oath is. It says that I will bear true faith and allegiance, that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the U.S. when required by the law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces when required by the law, that I will perform the work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I will take this obligation freely without any mental reservation. So Cassius Clay, who then when he converted to Islam, became Muhammad Ali, fought this. Now, certainly he had more courage than most draft dodgers, like even many of the political candidates from both parties that we know that uh, uh, avoided the draft. Because he didn't dodge it, technically. He used the court system to get out of it. And he faced the law. And ultimately was initially denied it and was... Uh, stripped of his license, of his practice of boxing, and uh, spent three years appealing the decision. But I think what's important here is to look at that decision. And ultimately, the Supreme Court reversed that decision. I will tell you here on this program that that ranks up there as one of the worst decisions of our Supreme Court. Not because... People can't conscientiously object. But the rules for conscientious objections are pretty clear. And there are three criteria that you must, that Americans must meet. But the main one is that Americans who invoke this uh, say that they have to be opposed to war in any form. The department's letter said at the time that the petitioner expressed beliefs that do not appear to preclude military service in any form, but rather were limited to military service in the armed forces of the United States in particular. 
So these constitute only objections to certain types of war in certain circumstances rather than a general scruple against participation in any war. And that's what conscientious objection is, and that's why they denied this to Muhammad Ali. And they went on in the decision to say why the teachings of the Nation of Islam, a separatist movement that refused to serve in the military, were not because of objections to participation in war, but rather because of political and racial objections. And this was the debate that was had. And I I will tell you that when we look, this is not only a simple, small debate when it comes to Muhammad Ali. This is an icon who kids looked up to. And if our youth look up to a Muslim, who then, if you look at the arguments that he made, he told the court, he told the court that... Um, he told the court that he was, quote, sincere in every bit of what the Holy Quran, the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad tell us, and it is that we are not to participate in wars on the side of nobody who on the side of the unbelievers, the non-believers, and this is a Christian country, and this is not a Muslim country, and the government and the history and the facts shows that every move towards the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is made to distort and is made to ridicule him and is made to condemn him and the government has admitted that the police of Los Angeles were wrong in, about attacking and killing our brothers and sisters, and they were wrong in Newark, New Jersey, they were wrong in Louisiana, And he goes on and he says, So we are not, according to the Holy Quran, to even as much as aid in passing a cup of water to the even a wounded. I mean, this is in the Holy Quran, Ali said. And as I said earlier, this is not me talking to get the draft board or to dodge nothing. This is there before I was born and will always be there and always be part of what the Holy Quran teaches us. And he says the Qur'an defined jihad as an injunction to the believers to war against non-believers. And then he quotes the Qur'an and says, O ye who believe, shall I guide you to the faithful trade and save you from painful punishment? Believe in Allah. And he goes on to describe jihad. So ultimately, war, he says, is not exclusive type of jihad. There is action of the believer's heart by his tongue, by his hands, etc. The jihad, in other words, is a sanction against polytheism, a refusal to pay the poll tax, and he goes on and says, Thus in Islam, as in Western Christendom, the jihad is the bellum justum. The jihad is the Muslim's counterpart of the just war. So he felt this was not a just war, and he explained it in very Islamic terms. And this is what breaks my heart. God rest his soul. God thank Muhammad Ali for his power, his strength, and the image of of unity that he gave, and especially the work that he did against racism to elevate and not stand for anything less than equal at the time of very tense race relations in America, in which Martin Luther King and others rose above and led us to an America that we are proud of today, that in which racism plays a much lesser role. It's not gone but it certainly plays a much lesser role thanks to leaders like Muhammad Ali. But when it comes to Islam, I'm sorry, Clay versus the United States is not anything I'm proud of. Our youth should be proud to serve in our military. They should be lining up in droves, as I said in last week's podcast, about will our youth want to die for America or will they rather die for ISIS? 
It's not just telling them dying for ISIS is bad. They want to have to, they have to want to rather die for America and die for freedom. And this case to me is runs at the core of what we have to fight against. The sense that America is not ours, that our military is not our military, but it's somebody else's military. That freedom is something that just comes out of the, the air and is not fought for and defended. That is what is eroding the Muslim identity and what is making Americans not trust us. And now enter Senator Paul. Senator Paul, now in his libertarian isolationist mentality, is exploiting the death of Muhammad Ali in order to put forth an attempt to attend to, to end selective service. And I'll say exploiting. I'm very upset at this legislation because the legislation he's trying to put through, he's naming after Muhammad Ali because the hometown of Muhammad Ali is Louisville, Kentucky. It's where uh, he would be buried. And ultimately, he is going to use the Muhammad Ali legislation to end the selective service. And Paul says, one thing I liked about Muhammad Ali is that he would stand on principle even when it was unpopular. He said in Louisville, you know the criminal justice system I say now has a racial justice disparity. Selective service had a racial disparity because a lot of rich white kids either got a deferment or went to college or got out of the draft. I'm opposed to selective service. There's no doubt there was a, a selective racial disparity. But what is Sen Senator Paul, what are many of these people saying to the blacks that served honorably and did not question their citizenship oath or violated and went to serve and some did not come back? They paid the ultimate sacrifice in Vietnam or in any other of the wars that we fought, be it Desert Storm or the wars we continue to fight in Afghanistan and in Iraq. The message to them is, well, you were too wimpy to have, you should have stood for your ground and not served in these wars because of the racial disparity. There should not be selective service. Now, they, they would say that those are volunteers, many of them, but in Vietnam, many weren't, and they did not come back. So shame on you, Senator Paul, to use this time to advance your own libertarian agenda of trying to end selective service in the name of Muhammad Ali so that forever Americans will associate a desire to not serve with the name Muhammad when in fact our armed services are full of Muslims who serve honorably and have wanted to serve and would be willing to serve if called upon and mandated by our government and not by volunteer countries like Israel and other free countries succeed because every citizen knows they need to serve their military. And I understand the need for a volunteer service. There may be a time, though, when we need our selective service, and I would not end it now, and especially in the name of a Muslim who chose to invoke jihad, invoke the Qur'an, and invoke his Islamic identity at the time with the Nation of Islam and with Elijah Muhammad, but it doesn't matter. He was reading the same scripture I did. And there may be many explanations, but I do not want to see my kids see a legislation under the name of Muhammad be used to end a central part 
of the loyalty that's demanded as part of our citizenship oath. And if citizens don't want to serve their military, then don't take the oath and don't become a citizen. But if you become an American citizen and you take the oath to defend this country from enemies foreign and domestic, unless you are belong to a faith that's completely pacifist, which nobody could ever argue that Islam is a pacifist religion, then you need to be able to serve in our military. And as much as I, I am proud of the fact that Muhammad Ali had the courage and the gumption to stand his ground and lose his years of fighting, at least three years at the peak of his career for this conviction, it breaks my heart that he did it under the name of Islam and by calling that his jihad. This is why we need reform. You cannot anymore... Jihad will only exist as long as there's a concept of a state. This is why the nation of Islam believes in jihad, because they're a separatist movement that believes in their own state at the time led by Elijah Muhammad. Now, since then, Muhammad Ali left the nation of Islam, became Sunni, and reported being Sufi. But the bottom line is, is that even the Islamists of the Sunni or the Shia version of Islamism believe that jihad is inspired by identity of the Islamic State and the loyalty to that faith is bonded to the loyalty of the military of that Islamic State. And this is why, again, the language that Muhammad Ali used in his testimony to the Supreme Court and to the courts that refused his conscientious objection. I have written about refusal that the Secretary of the Army should not have given conscious objection to the uh, Muslim that he did a couple of years ago. And I would ask you to take a look at that. Because then that individual then ended up being arrested for committing an act of terror. But again, separate that out. His conscious objection was born from being Muslim and not wanting to go kill other Muslims. That's absurd. We need to push that reformists begin to redefine and end violent jihad, period. That as we belong to the greatest states, the greatest country in the world, which is free and democratic, we can no longer talk about jihad, and we can't end it by simply saying it's ended. We have to reform the ideas and say that loyalty to American military secular system demands that we end the concepts of violent jihad. And that will not only end Islamist ideas, but it will end the fuel for terrorism. So call Senator Paul's office. Tell them to stop this nonsense in the name of Islam. Honor Muhammad Ali in other ways, glorifying his, his, his history, his story, his uh, work on civil rights for the African-American community, his work for Parkinson's disease, his work for peace, his work against a radical Islam and his work against terrorism. Yes, he was very clear in his condemnation of terrorism. But his Clay versus United States of America was a blight. And I am offended that that would be used as an iconic way to keep his memory. Thank you for joining me this week on Reform This. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is... Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.